0: The mass incarceration prison was built in part to respond to and make impossible the revolutionary upsurge that happened in prisons in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. And I think part of trying to think through the pandemic prison is like, okay, the pandemic ushers in a new era of prison governance that is equally, if not more, invested in the abandonment, but is you know more censorious, more repressive, and more privatized, and with the virus still circulating.
1: to the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode become a patron at patreon.com deathpanelpod pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism at your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore So today, I am thrilled to be joined by returning guest and friend of the panel, Dan Berger. Dan is an interdisciplinary historian, curator of the Washington Prison History Project, and professor of comparative ethnic studies at the University of Washington at Bothell. His research focuses on critical race theory, 20th century U.S. social movements, and critical prison studies. And he also has a new book coming out in January called Stayed on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey that you can currently pre-order from Basic Books. Dan, welcome back to the Death Panel. So nice to have you.
0: Thanks. So nice to be here again.
1: I'm so glad to have you here today to talk about an essay that you recently wrote that was a part of the Petrie-Flom Center Symposium on Health Law and Policy in an Era of Mass Suffering. The piece was called The Pandemic Prison, and this short essay uh, that I'm excited to talk and think through together is really about how in response to the pandemic, prisons doubled down on some of the worst features of incarceration, which ultimately exacerbated both the spread of COVID and the alienation, isolation and abandonment that folks on the inside were feeling. So ultimately, this not only worsened COVID inside and outside of prisons, it worsened mental health, increased isolation. People were cut off from access to programming, the outside world, contact with friends and families. All of this did very little to help stop the spread of COVID, but was done in the name of public health. While sites of mass incarceration, in fact, mostly ignored the actual recommendations for how they could protect incarcerated people and staff, how they could reduce infections and in the spread of COVID, And it resulted in more COVID transmission, not just inside institutions, but in general. Now, the most important point here that I haven't mentioned and longtime listeners of the show will probably recall me saying that part of the problem with the COVID response from the Biden administration has been that they act like medically vulnerable people or immunocompromised people live off in little bubbles somewhere outside of society. and ultimately, it's important to know that that's that's true of the entire pandemic response towards incarcerated people, not just in Biden, but this was from day one, starting in 2020. Um, And folks who are sort of not just in the sort of traditional realms of incarceration, but folks who are also detained in other congregate facilities like immigration detention, psychiatric detention, and nursing homes. And this has really been the approach to the pandemic from day one, pretending that basically what goes on inside of institutions stays inside of institutions and therefore doesn't matter or is not a piece of the whole uh, COVID picture. So with that context laid out, Dan, do you think you could start us off by talking about, as you write in the essay, why, quote, from the earliest days of the pandemic, anyone paying attention to jails, prisons and detention centers knew that they would be vectors of community spread. You know, for anyone that might be new to thinking about how carcerality and public health are linked, I would love for us just to get started by walking through some of the conditions that we knew immediately going into COVID were going to exacerbate community spread.
0: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately, just as as we sort of move on to this sort of quote-unquote, like, post-pandemic life with lots of viral spread. Um, I've been recalling just the early days of March and April of 2020 and just the, like, panic attacks that I was having at, you know, not only, like, what was happening in, in my immediate life, but also just what was happening, particularly what was happening to people who are incarcerated and and just, you know, I mean, you all talk a lot on this show about organized abandonment and, and just to see the scale and speed of organized abandonment accelerates so quickly in the face of a unknown virus, you know, was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously, social distancing, mask wearing, like the key things that can protect against the transmission of COVID or other respiratory viruses are not possible in prison.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I may have mentioned this when I was on the panel last time, but there's a artist Mona Chalabi, who did a really great graphic in the spring of 2020 for a prison policy initiative that visualized the social distancing that was recommended versus and, and compared it to cruise ships and nursing homes as these sort of two sites that were getting a lot of attention, and then compared it to jails and prisons, right? And you see like the, the, the two people in this graphic, right? Sort of move closer in each setting but the proximity in jails and prisons is they're like basically touching each other in this graphic um, compared to you know nursing homes and um, and cruise ships which were getting you know a lot more attention in the early days of the pandemic than what was happening inside of jails prisons and detention centers so people you know can't can't socially distance the institutions are just not set up for the institutions are not are not set up for health period uh, right. so if, if there's any if there's any like threat to health if there's any you know change in health like the institutions not only can't adapt but they just don't don't have the capacity and I think I would argue the will to to be able to provide that um, and we saw you know the capacities are sort of the the, the physical structures can accommodate that the will we saw that so many prisons were loath to give incarcerated people masks or other or hand sanitizer you know sort of infamously, New York State prisoners were uh, were making hand sanitizer in the early days of the pandemic, but weren't allowed to have any themselves right uh, in Washington, they were making PPE, right? so so there were these ways that incarcerated people became sort of first responders to to the pandemic, but were not allowed to uh, have the, the the safety that other uh, first responders are entitled to. Um, and so that that sort of goes across the board. One thing I talk about in the piece that in the early days of the pandemic, and I think still now, depending on the facility that you're in, the main way that quarantine exists is through solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And so people are placed in isolation, separated from their friends, from their possessions, for their safety, so to speak, <laughs> um, or, or, you know, allegedly for their safety. Brian. And so not surprisingly, this resulted in people being un- unwilling or reticent to share that they had symptoms because they didn't want to be placed in isolation. Uh, you know, typically solitary confinement is a form of punishment. And the fact that the only space that these institutions had available to quarantine people in the interest of public health is a site of punishment, I think, speaks quite clearly to what these institutions are set up to do.
1: Mm hmm. And I think this is one of the things that was really kind of telling, right, which is that when the pandemic started, despite the fact that it was readily obvious that from a built environment standpoint, none of those early recommendations were going to be able to be implemented within jails and prisons because of the kind of space constraints, because of the ways that we have decided that These buildings are fine to be just sort of like left uh, overcrowded and with very old HVAC systems. I mean, if we're talking about infrastructure investments in state buildings, like the prisons are always going to be the last on the list to get any upgrades. There is even a a, a terrifying sort of frustrating history of deinstitutionalization. Essentially, like we have during the period of like closing a lot of asylums and hospital schools in the United States one of the reasons some of those institutions even actually closed, like for example in the 70s and 80s, was because the buildings were under such disrepair that it was going to cost too much money to um, upgrade the facilities to the new minimum standards for these kinds of like large institutions that had been put in place to try and you know improve health and safety. But this the minimum standards for prisons were different. So part of what New York State did is they sort of moved money around, but they also like closed some of these facilities and moved people into smaller group homes and then turned those facilities into prisons because the, the standards were just, you know, low enough that like the building may have been, you know, deemed not livable for people with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities, but it was livable for prisoners under those standards. So there's always been that kind of existing understanding of the fact that these are spaces that reproduce the conditions, the negative social determinants of health that result in disease, in exacerbating infections, in making it much more difficult for people to recover from being ill. And people are not getting the medical care that they need. And so we sort of knew that that's what we had going in, that, that if there was a kind of concentrated viral infection like even if it was a really bad flu season, prisons are not set up to handle that at all. Um, there's nothing about the way that we've built them that could structurally respond to COVID. But what we saw instead was instead of doing anything to tackle any of those um, circumstances, which could have been really easily mitigated by you know letting a lot of people go right away and ending hey. things like pretrial detention, it, it's very simple, actually, to, as a fix. Um, Instead, prison started limiting programs like programming for in-family visitation. Uh, They restricted people's contacts with their legal teams. There were uh, this is from a prison policy initiative report. They wrote that 23 state prison systems suspended educational programming, drug and alcohol treatment, jobs programs, family in-person visits, legal visits and religious programs, and that the Federal Bureau of Prisons suspended all of those programs except for religious programming in some <laughs> facilities. <laughs> and so, you know, what we saw is this this response that was like, OK you know, we've got uh, a situation where we have essentially a a virus, a disease that when it meets the built environment that we're managing is going to be a big problem. What are we going to do? Close off access to the outside. You know, (laughs) that was really the response. And that's not just a kind of protectionism. that's, That's also intended as a kind of silencing and censorship.
0: Right. Well, and it's closed off access to the outside, except for the guards, right? right. <laughs> except for the people that that keep the prison uh, a prison. And of course, that's where the vast majority of COVID came into the prison. I mean, that, that's the only way that COVID came into a prison after after all the other programs were shut down. Right? I mean, clearly mm-hmm. some some must have entered before people were really paying attention to COVID. But by, you know, March 2020, when things were shutting down, it could only come in through guards. And so to remove all of the things that make life somewhat livable for incarcerated people without the mass releases, without the kind of decarceration that so many of us were calling for and and still call for is abominable. I mean, I have a, a comrade here in Washington who's really trying to Think through this as as genocidal, uh, in terms of how how he has experienced. I reference some of what he is going through in the pandemic prison article, but he's at a prison that has had multiple not only COVID outbreaks but tuberculosis outbreaks, mm-hmm. um, and and now people at that facility instead of being quarantined in isolation, the prison just quarantines them anyone with any symptoms of TB or COVID together in a big gym is basically like a laboratory to sort of guarantee future <laughs> mutations of, uh, right. uh, of both. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I know you were asking about censorship and I want to talk about censorship, but I, I also, you know, it's just so uh, apparent how much these institutions were sort of actively stoking Spread if when they shut down uh, all of the sort of social networks and or most of the social networks, but but then people are still incarcerated, right?
1: Right. So you you know you have folks that are often like making PPE in some cases where you you've got people where you know, in response to testing positive for COVID, they're put under sometimes, you know, there's a there's a great account, actually, of an incarcerated person's experience of COVID in the new abolition feminisms anthology from Haymarket. And in that account, this person is tested like, I think, three times and held in a quarantine facility that is like made in a kind of makeshift building that wasn't previously occupied because it wasn't up to standard to house people in or use basically for Mm -hmm. about a month straight and not you know no one's given any treatment no one's given any soap it's the kind of situation where if you look at also um, and you quote this in uh, your piece that essentially during 2020 what we saw was that 300,000 people were held in solitary confinement which is a just a horrifically record increase in this practice, which was originally invented as a punishment when you couldn't do the death penalty. Like, this is a kind of... um, And and in this COVID account in the Abolition Feminisms book, the person literally writes, like, I feel like I am being punished for catching this virus. Of which, of course, no one had any control over the conditions. The only people bringing the virus in and out at this point are, again, guards, exactly. right? This this is a kind of total removal of, of any kind of control and, or autonomy that actually kind of goes above and beyond some of the normal, quote unquote, normal conditions within carceral facilities.
0: Exactly. That's right. And, you know, I, I say this in, in the piece as well, right? 300,000 people in solitary, which is the Number that the U.S. incarcerated in, in total in 1980, right? So, like, just to get at at the at the sort of convergence of the speed of mass incarceration, with you know, we're we're really good at being able to lock up a lot of people really fast, um. But when it comes to needing to care for a lot of people really fast, things fall apart, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and punishment is what endures, um. And you know, I was talking with my students about this uh, last week. And, um, you know, in, in our conversation, I was sort of reminded, you know, the vast majority of COVIDs came from guards into prison. But it's also true that the prison systems were still transferring people and, and right. throughout COVID. And so, you know, it might come in through a guard, but then someone gets shipped from one prison to another prison. They're actively facilitating the spread, right? And, and I think what I've heard from some, comrades inside is, you know, just the the sense of outrage and desperation at their own bodies being turned into a weapon, you know, against themselves and against those around them. And I think, you know, it's similar to what you shared in that quote from the abolition and feminism anthology, right? It's like people are being punished for having a virus that they didn't want to catch, right? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and tried hard not to catch. But, it, you know, it's not only that they are you know, being punished personally, but, but that, you know, through, through that active policies of these institutions, their, their, their own illness is also weaponized against other incarcerated people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also the, the lack of information or access to any kind of, um, you know, the, so many of the ways that we sort of understand uh, how to like get through an episode of disease, right, is through the kind of social process of understanding like the symptoms and the duration and what to expect and what kind of, you know, there's a kind of socializing process of understanding experiences of diseases that happens. And I think what a lot of folks on the outside don't understand is that that information that a lot of us have on the outside really struggled even to to access, you know, because it's not necessarily been a kind of mainstream media uh, <laughs> framework to mm-hmm. be like talking about uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions and layered protections, you know. Right. So what I think a lot of people don't understand is just how little access people also had to any kind of information ab- about COVID and how these moves that were made immediately to reduce contact and reduce any kind of like visitation programs also resulted in in less information about COVID getting out as well. So this this is, I think, an, a really important kind of thing that a lot of people misunderstand is is that also within the kind of landscape of broadly sort of how many people come in and out of these facilities in a year if we're thinking about jails and jail cycling it's millions of people within the federal prison system people are transferred across state lines all the time none of these prisons had any um like coherence with their testing Uh as you were saying dan you know like people were like COVID was spreading across the country through transfers COVID was spreading inside and outside through prison uh employees contractors whatever But you also have the sort of concentrated population that's, again, being subjected to an infection that is difficult and dangerous to have um, with no resources, no medication, sometimes no mattress, no soap, and no information about even sort of understanding what it is that you're experiencing. And I can't even imagine the kind of fear of sort of knowing that COVID is really dangerous and everyone is really worried about it and it's justifying all of this treatment that you're experiencing, but not actually really knowing everything about COVID, right? Like, I think a lot of people have comforted themselves through their infections by being like, okay, I kind of know when it's dangerous, but I, you know, infections that happen in prison, like you're never going to be able to get that medical attention that you you need if things go bad, right? And I, I don't think people really think about that when they're talking about COVID and long COVID too.
0: That's right. Yeah. I mean, how much, you know, incarcerated people tried to figure out and, and still try to figure out their own practices of mutual aid uh, in order to care for themselves and, and each other as best they can in an institution that provides almost no resources. Uh, I spoke recently with Brittany Friedman, who's a sociologist at University of Southern California, but who was in New Jersey in the early days of the pandemic and got a grant to study COVID response in New Jersey prisons. And she shared this quote from one of the people who she interviewed that, uh, you know, was talking about how people were like, if you're feeling sick, like, let us know, like, well, you know, like, basically, like trying to avoid getting but getting placed in solitary as as I was talking about before. but like people trying to to care for each other, like I'll share what food I have from the commissary. Like if you need me to like call your family member, like let me know their number. you know, let me know how I can contact them, right? And people really working out like how to both care for each other medically but also socially and emotionally you know, through contacting loved ones and so on. Um, and I think your point about the a- limited access to information—you know, I'm, if I shared this when I was here last time, you can you can cut it. But but I remember um, in the early days of uh, of the pandemic, talking with a friend in New York who would call me to ask what the COVID numbers were in New York State, like at his prison, mm-hmm. because the DOC was like post them publicly. But so I could go on the DOC website and tell him like what the viral infection rate was like at his institution. Um, And that's, that is awful. Like that, that makes no sense. You know, like what, and why is that information not being shared with people who are there? Uh, And, and I think you have, you know, those kinds of, I mean, I I really like what you said, like there's no coherence to it. You know, I, I mean, I think it's easy because the conditions are so, awful and and it's easy to do a sort of litany of all the things that are going wrong to assume that there is active malice and there is active malice Mm -hmm. but there's also just like active incoherence right (laughs) and and it is the the convergence of malice and incoherence that that governs the response to covid in jails prisons and detention centers like there's just not a thought to what should happen like across systems, and the fact uh, that you know you have this concentrated population, as you were saying. But most of these facilities, particularly when we're talking about prisons, most of, most prisons are in rural locations, which have either no hospital access or really limited medical care. So if someone does get really sick, you know, it's potentially many hours before they could get to anywhere that could actually offer them the kind of life saving care that that, that they need. So, you know, the, I mean, it's all just like malice and incoherence, like stacked on top of each other.
1: Right. Absolutely. And here's a, here's a kind of another example that I think is, is great from this, uh, coronavirus diary, which, so the person was put into like COVID quarantine on May 16th. And it's not until June 11th that a doctor arrives. Um, so. to answer people's questions and explain what COVID-19 is and at the beginning of the account if I recall correctly it's like this is the she's coming in as the second wave of of people who have been quarantined so there were people who were quarantined prior to her but she, you know at this point she had been in there for weeks and was getting retested for like the second or third time only and that's when you're finally seeing a doctor. Right. And and what we know about COVID. Right. Is that COVID is more dangerous sort of uh, if you are unable to seek medical attention. And so as you're saying, it's this this incoherence and this malice is a kind of it's a kind of layering. Right. And uh, it builds on itself and these things build on each other. And so what sort of comes through neglect or what comes through deliberate harm, it doesn't really matter. The, the point is the same. And the point is that it like comes out on the bodies of the people who are being confined, who are being detained.
0: Exactly. And, you know, one thing I also want to bring into this mix is what Stevie Wilson and and comrades who are incarcerated in Pennsylvania and the 9971 study group wrote in the same Petri Flom uh, symposium on disaster capitalism and healthcare in prison when right? I talked about you know the the private sort of subcontractors that have taken over prison healthcare before COVID that is resulting in it taking he says re- requests take days sometimes a week to be filled in order to be seen by a medical professional you know and and, and he also is writing about how much people have to pay to be seen by medical staff, right? That, I mean, listeners may may not know that incarcerated people often have to pay a copay uh, in in prison,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? And so Stevie writes, uh, in prison people are charged anywhere from $5 to $15 just to be seen by medical staff when most incarcerated people make, you know, a couple of dollars uh, at best uh, <laughs> in, in a day. And so, you know, people both aren't being seen in a proactive measure but then there are so many hurdles to to jump over in order to see somebody that that they that further removes them from care you know i, I right. really appreciated what jessica phoenix said uh, on on the episode about censorship that you know the process is the ban uh, and you know she was talking about that in terms of literature but uh, but it's also true around healthcare right like right. there's you ma- you make enough bur- uh, enough obstacles enough hurdles people stop trying
1: right and in that piece um stevie and the 9971 study group there's this great paragraph that i just want to read they write that you know this kind of state of healthcare, the delay, the cost, the kind of administrative burdens being part of the experience to such an extreme degree that it, if you sort of take your your worst understanding of dealing with insurance companies and dial uh-huh. that up to 11, that that's right. the norm. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. Yeah. So so they write. Quote, this is the norm for imprisoned people, so imagine when COVID-19 struck. Disaster capitalism has been good to these companies. Many of them saw increases in budgets allotted for correctional health care, but they actually offered fewer services. When the pandemic hit, healthcare services were cut or shut down completely. Requests for basic medical and dental services were returned with statements like, quote, no treatment until we return to normal operations. In Pennsylvania, the Department of Corrections has yet to return to normal operations. Imprisoned people have been waiting for basic services for over two years, but the health contractors continue to collect money. And, you know, this is uh, this is fundamentally, you know, this is something that Artie and I sort of write about in health communism. This is, you know, the kind of money model of disability applies here, the kind of extraction as the priority for how all systems and sort of all uh, institutional architecture that's going to go towards managing or surveilling or quote-unquote providing healthcare to this population, right? Like the priority of of those relations and those systems is extraction from the incarcerated person. It is not the service first, it's extraction first and service if there's anything left over.
0: That's right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean I, <laughs> I just wanna want to underscore that. I mean, I, I and I think the extraction is happening, you know, as as you talked about with when Ruthie Gilmore's on the show, right? It's happening through time, like the the time that is stolen from people's lives through their incarceration. Um, and then we see it happening through through private healthcare, even in government run prisons. And we see it happening through private the the privatization of communication. In mm-hmm. in prison, again, in overwhelmingly government-run prisons, um, and I think both the private healthcare and the privatization of communication were trends that had existed before COVID in many places, but have really accelerated during the pandemic. I think that's something that I really was trying to think through in the pandemic prison and article, and and just in a lot of other things that I that I do. You know, incarceration is not just this sort of static, unchanging place, right? right. That it is responsive to things that are happening in the world. It is shaped by things that are happening in the world. You know, often uh, a harbinger of things that that will happen elsewhere in the world. And so, to write to see these like forms of extraction, privatization, and repression. You know, in some ways, that, that's what prison has always been. But to see them both converge and accelerate in the last two years, not necessarily, you know, because of the not not solely because of the pandemic, but sort of using the pandemic opportunistically.
1: Justified.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's what's so important. Right. Because I think some people who advocate for for covid protections are kind of wary of wading into this critique of of how the pandemic has been used to justify these kind of health securitization measures within uh, institutional settings, whether that's kind of critiques of, you know, how visitation policies have been changed from nursing homes to prisons, et cetera, whether that's critiques of, you know, some of the ways that lockdown and shutdown have been sort of used within prison to mean something very violent, you know, and I think that there's a kind of... (laughs) I think there's a kind of approach to this uh, complexity by sort of not thinking about what's going on inside of institutions and sort of focusing on that that best case use of those things where, you know, when we talk about protections, when we talk about mitigating the pandemic, what we mean and what we want is obviously not repression, extraction, alienation and isolation. Like we want to... Do, you know, reasonable things like masking, like cleaning the air, like reducing the density inside of large buildings, letting people protect themselves and not, you know, telling people it's your individual choice to purchase whatever product you want in order to protect yourself, you know, but to create a protective environment that doesn't exacerbate the reproduction of a viral disease, right? Um, exactly. And so we kind of, I think, avoid talking about what's going on in prisons.
0: Right, exactly. And the ways that that, that this generates, you know, uh, unanticipated consequences, right? So like early in the pandemic, you know, this is anecdotal, right? Things that people have told me. So, I, you know, a larger, more systematic study would, would be needed. But... Um, that that some guards wanted to wear like face masks, like Trump face masks, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, and then uh, you know if they were gonna ha- if they had to wear a face masks, they wanted to wear their Trump face mask. And then the the DOC didn't want them to because they didn't want them to provoke some prisoners who who wouldn't like that. So like then masks have become this sort of political football. The ways that again sort of mirrored what's happening on outside of prison. But even now, you know, you, I mean again, anecdotal, but hearing from from one person I know incarcerated here in Washington saying that lots of people at the prison, lots of incarcerated people don't want to wear masks because because it's become a source of punishment, right? Like if you're not wearing your mask properly, you can get a write-up. And if they're already in a conduct, this person who's telling me has had COVID twice and, you know, is serving a life sentence and cut off from educational programs right cut off from family visits because of the sort of suspension of quote-unquote normal operations and so was saying basically like well they're already like showed that they don't care about me (laughs) they're already like invested in like killing me in one way or another like why should I like have to wear a mask by you know their their specifications if I don't if like if I don't want to or whatever and you know it's it's uncomfortable like i want him to wear a mask right <laughs> but but i also understand like if things become sort of policed in this punitive context that is already not taking very uh, like easy steps to sort of preserve people's health and and lives uh you know how these things would would sort of become sources of conflict that they don't need to be right, right? and 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 the guards want the want the Department of Corrections to lift the mass mandate, you know, it becomes this very uh sort of projection of other political conflicts that is eminently avoidable.
1: Right. Right. I think that's why that's why I really appreciated this piece that you wrote and this kind of framing of the pandemic prison as being a way to understand how the pandemic has been used to justify this shift in in deprivation and this kind of dialing up of deprivation. Um, and you talk about it as sort of a a framework for understanding this shift, right? That, that this is, as we're saying, incarceration is not a constant, but it reflects the outside world. And as we've gone back to normal, quote unquote, like as we've been forced back to Biden's normal right. through open Biden, like. What we've experienced on the outside has had an effect on what folks are experiencing on the inside. But the kind of back to normal that we're fighting against, right, is not happening inside of prisons. You're not seeing a return to giving people these services. So this is a kind of, you know, it's a contradictory kind of framing, right, in one sense. And this is also happening in terms of like border policy, right? Or in one sense, the state is like, COVID's over. It's no big deal. Like, just take your mask off, get back to work. And on the other hand, COVID is still going to justify, you know, Title 42 and depriving prisoners like further in this kind of new uh, way under the guise of public health.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Blackwell wrote a really great piece in Jewish Currents recently called They're Destroying Our Support Networks, um, where he said, under the guise of COVID protections, prisoners are denied family visits, yet forced to work through outbreaks. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, right. The, I mean, you you all have been so consistent and, and clear and wonderful on this podcast about uh, the fallacy and illusion of the, the cruel optimism of back to normal. And, you know, the the virus is no respecter of those pronouncements. Uh, and yet you hear, you know, you, you see these, these COVID protections, quote unquote, uh, still, you know, limit the contact and possibilities for incarcerated people, while all of the worst aspects of prison continue, right? Right. So, so even getting back to normal in the prison context, it, it, it's a sad goal, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, but I, I to to really see this active disruption to to visits to sort of people's abilities to communicate is you know is devastating in real time but also you know this has long term consequences that we that we can't totally grasp and see but you know the idea that prisons are these rehabilitative institutions has always been a myth but to add to the to add to that you know people are incarcerated with with such a severe removal of family support of reading material uh, of exposure of constant exposure to you know, potentially debilitating or deadly illness. And then maybe they'll come home in a year or ten years or twenty years. And the idea is that somehow they will be the better for it is is a grim fantasy.
1: Yeah. It well, and I think this is why it's important to think through things in terms of Ruthie's framework of organized abandonment, because organized abandonment is not just about the organization of things. It's also about how things are uh, disorganized. It's, you know, it's, it's also about the ways that the disorganization and the deliberate disorganization, um, leads to, you know, exacerbating this kind of Structural framework that's going to accelerate the slow death conditions that are existing in prison that are like actually what constitute um, the kind of physical experience of being incarcerated and and what you see, you know, and what you lay out in the piece of uh, these kind of three characteristics of the pandemic prison really show, I think, that disorganization aspect of organized abandonment and how effective that is as a tactic, right? Because the kind of three components you lay out are isolation, abandonment, and censorship. And and throughout this conversation so far, we've just talked about maybe 12 or 13 different examples of all of these things, right? They, they are <laughs> iterative and they show up over and over in these kind of different ways where you have... um This kind of intensification, again, of biosecurity as being a justification for further deprivation and further torture using administrative burdens and using, you know, health security and disorganization in order to essentially make what was terrible uh, exponentially worse with the virus progressing, of course, and adding its own effects on top of this, right? Because like, yeah. you know, this is also not to say for like all of the sickness that folks are experiencing that they wouldn't be experiencing if COVID was not everywhere. Right,
0: yeah, exactly. And, you know, p- part of part of the, um, the the modern prison, like the mass incarceration prison was built in part to respond to and make impossible the revolutionary upsurge that happened in prisons in the 60s and 70s. So the widespread use of solitary confinement, isolation, a more sort of atomized prison system and and sort of prison governance that characterizes what my friend Toussaint Lossier and I have talked about as the warehouse prison, right? The sort of warehouse model of incarceration was a response to the revolutionary upsurge of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And I think part of trying to think through the pandemic prison is like, OK, the pandemic, yeah, <laughs> part of the panic attacks that I had in, in, in spring 2020, I think, was that I felt like I knew intellectually, at least, how to respond to rising fascism, you know, and, and you know, I, people, like we weren't we weren't doing it in the scale and way that that I thought we needed to right, as a left, as a society, but, but at least like I felt like I understood the terms, and I think the terms of how to respond to a respiratory pandemic i just I just didn't have it. you know, <laughs> like I think it was sort of entering the great unknown for me was like part of my like panic and and i I say that as prelude to say, like well, you know building building a new prisons and a and a model of incarceration to respond to to a revolutionary upsurge. I feel like you know, it took a while for incarcerated people to sort of figure out the mechanisms and means to like respond to that. But I think we've seen it in, you know, hundreds of labor strikes and hunger strikes in the last 12 years. Um, But I think the pandemic sort of ushers in a new era of prison governance that is equally, if not more, invested in the abandonment, but is, you know, more censorious more repressive and more privatized and with the virus still circulating right, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's like and I mean I, I'm I'm I have a sort of uh maudlin laugh because it's like well at least at least when prisons were sort of adapting to stop a revolutionary challenge there was like a revolutionary challenge you know <laughs> like for, mm-hmm. now like for, for prisons are adapting to like Respond to the reality of the pandemic, but not in a way that's trying to stop the pandemic, but in a way that is, is taking, a, you know, at least minimizing, if not eliminating the sort of forms of sociality that allow people to, to still figure out ways to, to live and connect and in some cases even thrive despite the, the severity of incarceration. And, and that's so terrifying to me.
1: It, it really it is. And if we think about, you know, anyone who studies the the history of incarceration and the history of institutions, the conditions of confinement leading to a kind of overwhelming public health uh, problem that begins to shape the development of of incarceration is is a kind of common theme, actually, right. that, that yeah. recurs <laughs> yes. again and again right. and again. Right. You know, right. thinking about, you know, jail fever, which is really uh-huh. typh- typhus, right? right? Right. And then you've got, you know, tuberculosis, which is, as you were saying, uh, there have been two outbreaks in, uh, which prison is, is it in Washington, right? Stafford now? Creek. Yes. And uh, in September, the State Department of Corrections was fined more than $84,000 for not you know, stopping the spread of tuberculosis. And in December of 2021, they were fined $60,000 for not stopping COVID. And, and it's not like any of that's going to really change how, right. their behavior. We know that. But, you know, these kinds of moments where conditions of confinement become overwhelming, sort of incendiary, causal links in in chains of infection and chains of, of illness um, you know, this is something that, that it, as we're saying, this is like part of the entire history of incarceration and, and of warehousing in general.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there was a, a big protest in uh, a prison here it's called the Washington State Reformatory in the early days of the pandemic. I think in April of 2020, I want to say. And that prison, uh, a, a year earlier, almost exactly a year earlier, uh, the Department of Corrections medical director was fired from because she had failed to for for medical neglect. She had let several prisoners die from preventable uh, from, from from preventable illnesses. Right, so all of the all of the challenges that we're seeing, like COVID, are absolutely baked into the institution. And you know, and you can sort of look at several several sort of epidemic histories, epidemiological histories from tuberculosis to HIV to COVID, and see, you know, similar forms of of neglect and abandonment that thrive in the institution.
1: Right. And and it's not just that, like, oh, the problem is these facilities are understaffed. And if only they were staffed and funded properly, it would be fine. You know, the the kind of st- the kind of violations that are going on, this is a deliberate indifference to human life that is how this entire framework works, right? There isn't a kind of vision for a public health that is compatible with mass incarceration or incarceration in general. And this is something that's evident and obvious um, all over the place right now. Also, there's a, a, really horrific cholera outbreak in Haiti um, mm-hmm. that's been going on in prison in Haiti. And, you know, the the way that disease travels, right? It's It's not just about commerce. It's not just about globalization. It's not just about environmental destruction. It's also about broad global scale carceral preferences for large mm-hmm. facilities detaining people under conditions of deliberate indifference. Extraction right. and abandonment that's right,
0: yeah, I, and I think you know we we have to you know that there there's a lot of local and regional specificity even within this country, right like the Washington prisons are not the same you know there are some different dynamics in Washington than there is in North Carolina than there is in Minnesota, um much less to compare you know California to Haiti to Palestine uh, or Israel. But but there is a a shared logic and a shared structure and a shared pra- practice of incarceration globally that has its origins in social control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I mean, whenever you talk about prisons, people in this country always go to, to the idea of Norway or whatever it <laughs> seems like, I- I- idyllic prison idea. But, um Right. But, but that, that's the sort of function uh, of prison. That, that's sort of at root what it's there to do. Uh, and and when you combine the scale of abandonment that you see in, you know, certainly the, the scale might, di- might differ in some parts of the world, right? But the function of, of prison is overwhelmingly and ultimately about repression. Um, and, and to combine repression with abandonment gives you what we're seeing in places like the cholera outbreak in Haiti, Haitian prison, the various... Uh, pandemic and viral outbreaks in in Washington and elsewhere in this country.
1: And there's this great moment in your piece where you write that when you look back on the demands that incarcerated people and their loved ones and advocates um, raised in 2020, you find no mistakes uh, in mm-hmm. those demands and that they're still relevant. I wonder if we can talk through what some of those are, because I think that What I hope folks can take away from our conversation is that when we are kind of as a left or as organizers or as just general people living our lives, when we're thinking about COVID and we're thinking about COVID mitigations, these ideas and demands cannot stop at the walls of institutions because fundamentally, these are kind of you know, situationally and biologically, like, locales that exponentially amplify the spread of infectious diseases. Like, this is sort of, you know, as we're saying, this is not to say that it's, like, uh, trying to, like, imply that, you know, jails are dirty and terrible (laughs) and awful and we need to stay away from them. Like, no, we're just saying structurally, like, that is what these things do. And if we want to really conceptualize a kind of end goal for COVID, a kind of zero COVID framework, um, any kind of quote unquote living with COVID that doesn't just involve ignoring what's going on around you. Um, If we want to actually create the kind of society that I think many who are advocating for COVID protections really do want, which is one where folks are not being deliberately exposed to a virus without consent over and over with no regard for the long-term impacts of those, uh, nor the short-term impacts of it as well. If we want that, right, like, and we don't make sure that we're also including making sure to make incarceration and COVID a central... Sort of thrust of of how we think of COVID and also where our demands are oriented, there is there is no way to do zero COVID with mass incarceration. It doesn't work, right? Exactly. And, and so we need to, I think, abruptly sort of embrace things that abolition, the abolitionist movement has been demanding since day one of COVID, which has always been there, sort of ready to pick up. But I think a lot of people, you know, have been reticent to sort of incorporate this because we're operating on this kind of scarcity mindset of sort of always working against these off ramps, always working against this kind of constant race to the bottom to try and make the status quo even further away from any kind of mitigations. And so, you know I think there's a kind of austerity approach a kind of zero sum approach of like oh we don't have room we don't have time to to consider inside the walls like we have so much to worry about but the fact of the matter is is that these the, these are not separate places right like everything is interconnected and we need we need to have these analyses together if we if we want to you know actually pursue covid policy that um can tangibly reduce the level of community spread which I think is most people's goal in general.
0: That's right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I think the, um, the the demands that, that came, you know, very, very quickly in the spring of 2020, I mean, first of all, was mass decarceration. I think it, it got, you know, best summarized in the slogan, free them all for public health. But the idea, again, you didn't need to be an abolitionist to see this Right. Although I guess I guess it helped, but, uh, but it, you know it, it was clear that anything that spreads in close quarters is going to run like wildfire through institutions where people are, you know, sometimes quadruple cells, um sometimes sleeping, you know, in a big dorm in a gymnasium in a so open dorm, right? So, so just the idea that like we have too many people in prison, prisons are not set up for public health, like. End of story, like the, the there's no there's no meaningful conversation about flattening the curve if for the for <laughs> a deep cut. I know, but, um, but there's no <laughs> meaningful <laughs> conversation about flattening the curve that doesn't begin from the premise that there are too many people in jails, prisons and detention centers. And the only way around that is to let them go. Right. Uh, right. And and so uh, and I think that needs to be paired, you know, uh, obviously and, and immediately with a kind of social housing right with like people need I, I think there are lots of people who are incarcerated and detained that have homes to go to but not everyone does right and so right. making sure that people have safe and and uh, stable housing to go to um and you know that's that's uh a demand that that would be a, a Great benefit to lots of people who are not incarcerated, who don't have stable housing to go to, um, and 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 that within a context of you know universal healthcare, of access to PPE and, and other NPIs, and you know every, everything that we need. I mean, I think those, those were the kind of immediate demands that I think abolitionists raised, and uh, and and I think raised not only. Uh, quickly, but, but across a variety of settings, you know, so there were a series of class action lawsuits brought by incarcerated people uh, against state prison systems, calling for, calling for, for releases. Uh, I remember the one here in Washington, you know, the, (laughs) the, the DOC responded something like, you know, to the, it went to the state Supreme court and, um, he was like, well, this this lawsuit is ridiculous. Like, if we were to follow this, we would have to like let you know eleven thousand of the seventeen thousand people go who are pregnant. <laughs> and it's like, well, like what a what a what a self own, as the kids say, right? Like, you're, like you're you're admitting like your institution has like a lot of people that you're exposing to to potential illness or death, and that you like can't keep safe. Right. And so you know, I I really appreciate that moment. Uh, you know, as terrifying as it was in, in the spring uh, of 2020 into the, you know, for, for the rest of 2020, really, um, where there were, you know, there were protests, there were, sort of, you know, press conferences, media events, but there were also lawsuits, you know, there were these attempts to, there were, you know, uprisings and and escape attempts inside of, of some of these institutions, like where people really were trying for every available mechanism, you know, mostly through the quote unquote proper channels, but also outside of them, um, to to get resolution. And I think, you know, the the fact that it, you know, th- there were some very important victories in that. Um you know some people did get released, some prisoners were allowed to access masks and hand sanitizer, some of these you know, private companies that run telecommunications inside <laughs> offered, you know, a free day of email or a free five-minute phone call once a week. I mean, um, these things that are small scale and, you know, almost tokenistic, but 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 do make a difference in people's lives. Um, right. But it didn't, you know, it, it didn't... It wasn't to scale, right? It, right. Did, it didn't. It didn't do what it needed to do, um, and I think, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, heads of the Department of Corrections and governors and uh, other political elites were just, in retrospect, it seems like sort of biding their time or just waiting for that sense of urgency to pass to to return to this sort of new new normal of expanded repression, right? So, if for people who got out, great, they got out but everybody who stays is going to be subject to to the pandemic prison right And so I think part of what I want to do you know in, in saying you know I, I see no mistakes in what we did. I think we just didn't have the the power to to carry it forward right to, to, to win um And so I think you know and, and 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 of course everything that happened protests in and against prisons and jails and the and detention centers in the spring of 2020 was a part of the uprisings that summer Mm -hmm. Um, and so everything since that summer (laughs) has been about trying to to crush that that energy and that initiative from from you know a variety of institutions and so I think you know I, I wanted us to sort of think through how the pandemic occasioned these changes to prison but also you know I think we can carry forward and 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 renew that freedom all demand and strategy hopefully with you know building greater and greater support and power so that we can actually win those abolitionist transformations that we need
1: absolutely i i've been thinking about this a lot about how about how sort of connected in the sort of early days of COVID, how connected some of the ways that we talked about COVID broadly um, were to things like understanding the kind of concentration of, of sickness that was happening in warehousing facilities. Some of that was obviously kind of there were moves very early on from the state to try and minimize liability and minimize any kind of oversight of of what was going on, for example, in, in nursing homes and in prisons, you had like this move where the DOJ like asked Congress early on in 2020, like, hey, can we make it so judges can just indefinitely detain people because it's a public right. health emergency? And so, you know, I think you had these these moments, right, where we, people who were already working on looking at these arenas as kind of these structures that were characterized by, by organized abandonment were pretty ready to go. Like once the pandemic really became, um, quite ubiquitous, I think with these kinds of demands and that fit, I think, into the political imaginary of the moment where everything was sort of focused on understanding the fact that COVID was sort of driven by sociality and driven through close contact and through sharing space. And that idea, um, is one of the ideas that has dropped the furthest out of the public <laughs> imaginary and the kind of understanding of what covid is even even in the f- the sort of acknowledgement finally that covid is airborne which you know there're still like public health agencies that will not acknowledge it like i think like in ontario they won't or, you know or some shit like that they haven't even wow. said it yet so it's it's not not to say that like COVID being airborne is uniquely accepted. Like, you know, there needs to be more people uh, who agree on that. But even before when that was challenged, right, when people were still talking about fomite spread and, you know, cleaning surfaces and this kind of like droplet protocol around COVID, um, there was this this focus on the the sort of shared space aspect being part of the driver of tra- transmission, whether that was like focused on the proper route of transmission or not. That was still there as a framework. And yep. as I think you started to see certain commentators like Monica Gandhi starting in the fall of 2020, you know, she starts writing about how, you know, lower quality masks are are useless, that masks that people are making themselves are basically like not wearing a mask at all. And that, you know, the only way to sort of properly protect yourself from COVID is through purchasing, um, very difficult to get at the time, high quality and 95 masks, where you had public health agencies saying, don't buy those masks, those right. are reserved <laughs> right. for healthcare workers. Right. And then you have this line begin to emerge, which I think ultimately it was initially intended to push back on that artificial restriction of keeping N95s for people. But what was accomplished in that advocacy was the sort of shift of the idea of COVID as a collective public health threat that happens to a kind of collective body because we share space with one another, right. to it being an individual consumer choice, a kind of personal risk assessment your personal brand, what you have access to, your sort of decision and choice. And, you know, obviously, like that kind of value framework of like good masks are great and bad or lesser masks are nothing, um, you know, completely abandons folks who don't have the means to purchase good masks and who didn't um, or people who are making their own maybe because they're incarcerated and they might be making... Your N95s, but they're certainly not being given N95s to wear. Right. You know, I, I really do feel like one of the kind of upstream shifts that begins to occur in the kind of rhetoric about collective protection is you had people being like, "Well, it's hypocritical to call for collective protection and then to protest in the street, so we might as well do nothing at all about COVID." <laughs> and 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 that rhetoric really kind of begins to get out of control, and then you have the Great Barrington Declaration emerge, and this stuff is sort of amplified and goes way beyond the arena of where it sort of originated, which was ultimately in this kind of discussion of protection being an individual phenomenon versus a collective goal, right? And I think that in that kind of shift, right, like, it was very difficult to continue to build power for demands like free them all for public health because... Public health had been before our eyes transformed into individual consumer choices.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think that's really well said. And and it makes me think of something that I, I can't I, I don't know if I if I will articulate this quite right, but I you know, I think prisons are these concentrated, multiracial but disproportionately black spaces that that are sort of a ready-made collective, right? Everyone inside is a prisoner um, and we sort of understand them collectively. And I think the uprising in 2020 was an expansive collective that was also a very multiracial and Black-led. And I think there was a a terror from everyone in charge at, at that rebellious energy and upsurge. And so I think they've spent the last, you know, two years trying to dismantle it. Uh, you know, trying to make impossible that level of like black led collective rebellion mm-hmm. and you know uh, uh, prisons were not sort of uniformly in rebellion in the same way but i think there were lots of uprisings and and rebellions in in jails and prisons against covid and the abandonment to covid and i think those things got sort of merged not in a in a clear way but but in the way that you're talking about right of just a uh, that that the the form of abandonment had to take aim at this multiracial collectivity through individual purchasing power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about you're you you know as as you also brilliantly say right you're you're entitled to the all the healthcare you can you can buy or all the healthcare you can afford. You say it, but it, I am messing up the quote, but, um, <laughs> but uh, listeners will remember. Um, and you know, and I, and I think that's true in prison, right? You're you're entitled you're enti- to healthcare that you that you can afford because everything is being privatized. You're you're entitled to the communication that you can afford because your communication networks are being privatized. Right. Um, and and I think all of that is is you know this sort of ongoing sort of structural attempt uh, to to sort of structurally prohibit that kind of collectivity that we see that 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 we saw, right? And that and that we can see emerge in these spaces.
1: Absolutely. I yeah, I usually put it in terms of survival. And I think that, you know, it it's one of those it's one of those things that I think I've been focusing on for the last year and a half, sort of as the Biden administration has really effectively um, reproduced the kind of personal responsibility framework of COVID mitigations and simultaneously allowed, unchallenged, and in many cases encouraged the increased (laughs) um, abandonment and uh, extraction from incarcerated populations. I mean, I think it's no coincidence that Kay Ivey, uh, the governor of Alabama, like, Mm -hmm. you know, very very publicly, and you write about this in your piece as well, like pledges like $400 million of federal pandemic relief money to fund new prison construction. And one of the things that is central to the prisoners strike that's been not as in the news as it should be, but I think Mm -hmm. is on pause right now, but was ongoing for part of the summer and early fall, Was that, you know, (laughs) people were being basically held uh, indefinitely without clear parameters for when they could even qualify for release. And that they were demanding sort of guidelines for like when people would be able to be released. And to juxtapose that with, you know, committing money to building more prisons, which, you know, there's the kind of line if you build them, like they will fill them. Right.
2: Right. Exactly. Um,
1: Coupled with the fact that, you know, within the existing bureaucratic structure, right, like folks who are already incarcerated, who are already in these facilities, like we know it's not that this new prison is being built to make more room for them. And there (laughs) is kind of no framework for their eventual release from these circumstances. So it's really just an expansion of the capacity of the the state of confinement, not um, a kind of improvement in anyone's condition. Right. This is just more carceral architecture and armature. And it's it's the you know, it's this kind of I think it's really important to, to think about both the way that COVID mitigations have been abandoned in the workplace and the Biden mm-hmm. administration has really forwarded this approach of you know pushing for pledges from employers and you know personal responsibility and moving away from mandates moving away from even recommendations on masking and right. sort of creating <laughs> yep. these new maps that that really shift the data picture in order to encourage people to you know just sort of go out and live their life while <laughs> Also encouraging state and local governments to invest in police, to invest in carceral architecture, to invest in these spaces that, as we're saying, categorically continue covid and and fuel it, right? And exactly. and and, of course, we you know, we don't have any any money to do anything except for invest in that. <laughs> and, and that's this is the kind of like right. state craft and type of state decision making that, you know, is characterized by organized abandonment that that is really sort of the most one of the most important things that you can sort of take from that idea is like to be able to look at things like what's going on in terms of the pandemic response in your workplace, in your state and local government, in the federal government, but also within specific locales like prisons and jails or nursing homes and understand how those things are like interrelated and mutually reinforcing and that that kind of individuation of public health doesn't just abandon you the worker who you know has no pandemic protections at work anymore or you the disabled person who lives at home and who is being isolated it also abandons like the people on the other side of that that framework who are incarcerated and this is you know these things are not disconnected they're not separate they're not in separate silos or bubbles this is a kind of moment where the capacity for collectivity is there, right? And it is up to us to kind of work towards that. And what we're working against is that the state is deliberately, I think, making these kind of rhetorical and cultural and political interventions in order to, to really discourage that kind of collectivity.
0: Yeah, no, I, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, I'm I'm bummed I didn't include it in the piece. But we shouldn't forget that as a candidate, Biden said that he would reduce the federal prison population by 50 percent. And it has, in fact, risen under his time as president um, while he's, you know, encouraging municipalities to spend any remaining COVID money on hiring more police. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think the the connections to, you know, across all of these things, right, are, are you know, yeah, exactly minimizing or or undermining, more than minimizing, undermining the capacities for collectivity, um, expanding these sort of privatized options, and and what the sort of carceral system is there to do, right, is mm-hmm. to be the sort of punitive arm of of a sort of capitalist individualism. And so, you know, these, uh, uh, just as you said, right, are sort of calls or plans to build more prisons or more jails, more detention centers, to hire more cops, are inseparable from the move away from a sort of collective care approach to COVID or, or to anything else.
1: Absolutely. And I, I like the way that you frame that in terms of sort of saying, you know, it's not that they're minimizing. Um, because one of the things that I, I often think about is sort of what is the point of COVID minimization? It's not uh-huh. to minimize COVID. Right. It's actually to rhetorically sort of do that knowledge production that works against the collective response. And that, exactly. you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the point is not COVID. It is that COVID is a sort of component of a much broader landscape of what you know, so-called health, right? That is incredibly right influenced by social structural and political forces
0: right yeah exactly and I you know I think I said before like I, I don't see any mistakes in the demands of 2020 but I, I certainly think that we can add to them now um, because we've seen as you all put it like the the social construction of the end of the pandemic like the attack on this basic data collection
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, is is quite profound. You know, I remember when like the New York Times back when it was sort of possible to track clusters like more on a more sort of precise way. Like the New York Times had this chart. And then like the summer of 2020, I think it was, um, you know, nine out of 10 or all 10 of the top 10 places of, of COVID clusters were carceral facilities. Um, you know, before that it was sort of neck and neck between carceral facilities and meatpacking plans. Mm-hmm. And now like there's no data collection, right? There's no testing. There's no, like, just the, our ability to even understand beyond these, um, you know, anecdotal dimensions of the spread of COVID has been, you know, one of the main assaults of of this sort of social construction of the end of the pandemic. Uh, and so, I, you know, part of, i think part of the ways that carceral systems try disorganize right part of the ways that that organized abandonment is about disorganizing collectivity is uh, undermining the ability to to sort of grasp what's happening to us right? um, mm-hmm. and so i think you know part of our demand is i think we ha- we have to be able to to move forward in ways that are both presenting the sort of maximalist demands of of everything for everyone um, while, while also recognizing what are the, what are the metrics that we can raise that can also better help us to do that, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so as basic things like maths and tests go away, um, you know, the pandemic is over because the pandemic response is over um, while viral spread continues unabated, you know, like it, it's, it's such a deep hole to dig ourselves out of, right. um, I guess. Um, and I think the abolitionist framework, you know, uh, is really helpful in order to sort of understand like both where we want to go, but also the sort of the steps that get us there.
1: Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think in terms of looking back at the history of deinstitutionalization in the United States, I actually have a lot of hope because there were moments mm-hmm. where you had, you know, collectivity between people who were on the inside, people who were authority figures governing and managing those on the inside, people who were experts on the outside organizers, you know, essentially fighting against those same constituencies that we're always fighting against, which is like yep. austerity and like state budget language of, of you know, revenue neutrality, right. uh, guards right. unions, police yep. unions, and the kind of uh, appeal to public, quote unquote, public safety. Right. right. Um, and, and so you have this you have had these moments where we have actually been able to sort of slowly build up the collective thought analysis, mm-hmm. organizing and pressure required to kind of tackle some of these durable frames. And, and I think in a, a lot of ways, like what COVID is exceptional for producing is perhaps another moment for us to sort of leverage um, towards collectivity, towards like uniting our analyses and uniting our organizing and, and you know, labor towards building goals together with <laughs> with other that's organizers right. versus just yeah. sort of staying in the, the silo of sort of categorical issue based organizing and and that's one of the things that i think you know i i hope that you know folks can take away from some of the way that we cover the the pandemic on depth panel which is we're sort of taking this deliberate approach of, of saying you know like your pandemic experience, um, connects to everyone else's and that we're actually all sort of unified in this really horrible, uh, fucked up way right now. (laughs) And that the only way forward is like together. And that's the only way that we can sort of accomplish anything, right. Is to sort of build and push beyond the bounds of what any of us have, have thought possible. And I think as, pandemic protections on the sort of general level have rolled back with the off ramps and the sociological mm-hmm. production of the end of the pandemic, it's really narrowed the kind of horizon of what people feel like we can ask for. You know, there's a lot of discuss- discussion about being reasonable and making sure to sort of try and and, and find a way to, to make your positions not seem so extreme. But at, at the end of the day, I think a lot of us are confident that we actually can back up are quote unquote extreme demands because we have, in the example of decarceration, we have literally centuries of evidence of the success <laughs> of decarceration yep. as both a public health measure and a measure for generally just improving society.
0: Right, exactly. No, I right, that, that's exactly right. I mean, what what could be more extreme than than a do nothing approach to the apocalypse?
1: Well put. Right. I mean
0: like that uh, that's you know i mean by apocalypse I mean not just covid but but climate catastrophe and there there's no like if 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 everything if 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 normal brought us to this point, clearly it's not working <laughs> so <laughs> like that that the extreme position is to say that we can that we can just keep going as we've been going maybe with a few tweaks here and there mm mm-hmm. That, yeah. that to me is, the. I can't think of anything more extreme than that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right there. And um real quick, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover?
0: Well, one thing that I had meant to say when we talked about censorship is just to spell out a little bit of these, what, what these, the privatization of telecommunications looks like, because that's not... In in some ways that's not a COVID thing, but it is a, a clear example of how COVID has exacerbated an existing thing that, you know, all these prison systems were saying that drugs were coming into their facilities and so they needed to take away prisoners' physical mail. Mm. And um, and of course, like COVID, the only way drugs come into the facility is through guards or, or other staff. So you see the sort of privatization of communication, you know, pre predated COVID, but But based on the same kind of flimsy excuses and and COVID supercharged that um, so that, you know, the whole states have signed contracts with these companies to like receive prisoner mail and scan letters and then send the scan to the prison to print them out and and deliver them. And so you lose that, you know, tactile-ness of like, my friend or my loved one sent me this letter and you get to see the letter, you know, <laughs> you mm-hmm. lose all of that through this sort of techno dystopia of scans and emails and and things that are are just further uh, sort of objectifying the incarcerated person, right? <laughs> it's like a, an object of communication instead of a, it, the subject um, and are just these sort of massive state contracts to private companies. Right. Um and, and so, you know, as we see the Biden administration cheer on the possibility that CVS will be your uh you know vaccine spot instead of the government, um, you know, I, I think that it's that same dynamic that um that is is withholding and controlling prisoner communication or the ability of prisoners to communicate with folks from the outside. So I wanted to say that because I, I think it is it is a sort of another example, right, of, of how some of these dynamics of like massive state contracts to the bad private actors um, that we see in healthcare exist in these other realms um, in the prison context as well. That um, is not even really about COVID, but COVID has become the the context in which those contracts have been uh, have grown, have, have exacerbated. Um, and, and I think it speaks to the forms of privatization that we will need to fight, right? Which is these public-private partnerships, right? That prisons are overwhelmingly government-run, but then are signing these multi-million dollar contracts to these horrible companies to to extract both value and uh, and time from prisoners and their loved ones.
1: Right. Well, and this is really, like, I think the approach to to prisoner mail that we saw before the pandemic, which obviously, you know, as we've been saying, the pandemic was then used to justify a kind of rapid scaling up of this um, Mm -hmm. or standardization. You know, that's one of the best examples of of extractive abandonment, because it's a kind of optimization of the population, uh, trying to optimize the kind of quote unquote, safety or security of this captive population. And through doing that, essentially what you do is you also create uh, revenue pathways for private companies to come in and, you know, through public funds, essentially enrich themselves off of managing this um you know, sort of state of securitization, which is about sort of optimizing the security of that population or optimizing the quote-unquote health of that population by keeping, quote-unquote, keeping drugs out, right? And, and so, exactly. yeah, it's one of those moments where, you know, a lot of the kind of dynamics that that we've been calling out, for example, are, uh, you know, it's important to, to remember that they're not new things. They're things that were in place that people wanted to do anyways. And that it's that kind of um, didn't Rahm Emanuel used to say, never waste a good crisis. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's Milton Friedman originally. Oh, yeah. well, Yeah yeah <laughs> same difference yeah <laughs>
1: um you know but it, it was really i think a lot of uh sort of pandemic policy yeah um from you know certain types of of policymakers leaned into the policy craft of of really essentially sort of using the pandemic to justify securitization that they already had on their their wish list, and the right. damage that that does long term towards like the public's understanding of of covid and the quote unquote trust in in public health is so much more monumental than any of the things that usually get called out for sort of that that uh, breach of trust. Right. That, oh, our institutions are just not accountable anymore. Like, well, oh, maybe, you know, part of it is that people were, uh, you know, very quick to just Protect nursing home companies from <laughs> any liability for death or increase, you know, and, and and these kinds of like approaches to to managing the population to trying to optimize the population become these tremendous moments for the development of whole industries. I mean, if we think about pharmacy benefit managers or just the legions of people who work for insurance companies to do right. prior authorizations, this is an incredible way to, quote unquote, build the economy um through our bodies and through the way that right. we exactly. are exploited and extracted from
0: Exactly. Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. And and I guess the the hope that I have here is that I think, you know, part of that framework is like never let a good crisis go to waste is, you know, the idea that that whatever ideas are are lying around become the ways that we respond to that crisis. And I think there has been such an explosion of or not explosion. there's been such a proliferation of abolitionists, of you know health communist ideas that that I think does equip our sort of fighting spirits to respond much much better and much more sharply, right. So I think there are these better ideas lying around that we've been developing collectively in the last several years and decades that I think yeah, that I hope, right. Can, can really uh, guide us moving forward.
1: Well, wow, that's a lot of pressure to be put on the level of <laughs> <laughs> on equal footing there, but uh, an honor to hear that. But no, I mean, and, and that's, that's part of the reason I think that trying to connect our understanding of COVID to these broader uh, issues of public health that are not so straightforward that that deal with some of these durable institutions is really really key and important and um, you know i appreciate the work that you do dan and i appreciate our friendship and it's always good to have a conversation with you so i'm really glad that we had you on today to talk about this is there anything that you want to plug before we wrap
0: well thanks so much for having me it's really great and i think the this pandemic prison piece was a attempt to try to think aloud and in print. And so I really am so delighted to have the chance to think aloud verbally uh, <laughs> with you. Uh, and this is such a vital intellectual community. I would be so, so honored and love uh, if if listeners uh, would pre-order my book, State on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey, which is publishing in January. Um, but pre-orders are a great help as your listeners will know uh, from your own plugs for your book. <laughs> yes. So um, so I really appreciate uh, anyone who takes the time to do so for themselves or for their local library.
1: And I am loving it so far. I can't wait for us to talk about your book. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be so you. fun. And if you want to follow Dan, uh, he is at D-N-B-R-G-R on Twitter. Um, and Dan, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. This was great.
1: And patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash pod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.